0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Can you find a through line in the work of Adam McKay? Are there any common elements... He's had a very eclectic career. He started in sketch and improv comedy, first as a founder of the Upright Citizens Brigade, then as a writer on Saturday Night Live. He worked on the show between 1995 and 2001. He studied at Second City, so throw that in for good measure, and then he started working in movies. He collaborated with Will Ferrell to make some stone cold comedy classics: Anchorman, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights. Lately, though, his work has been more serious, topical, political. A few years back, he wrote and directed The Big Short, which deconstructed and explained the 2008 financial crisis. He helped create the HBO show Succession, a drama about a family that owns a colossal American media empire. And then there's Vice, his latest movie. It's the story of former Vice President Dick Cheney. It's playing in theaters now, and it is up for, checking my notes, eight Academy Awards. I guess here's the common thread with McKay's work. He sells it. It's never boring. It's never forced. He'll take an extremely dumb joke, like, I don't know, stinky perfume that smells bad, and frame it in a way that is so clever and compelling you just lose it. Or he'll find a way to explain credit default swaps that's so completely entertaining and engrossing and fresh, you forget that you are accidentally learning about credit default swaps. Vice is, as I mentioned, a biopic about Dick Cheney. He's played brilliantly by Christian Bale. It's probably fair to say that pretty much every American has an opinion of Dick Cheney. He's gruff, droll, kind of blunt, maybe a little bookish. Vice tells us why, for better or worse, Dick Cheney is one of the most consequential people in recent American history. And since it's an Adam McKay film, Vice finds the most compelling and fun way to show all of that. Like in this scene, one of the pivotal ones in the movie, where George W. Bush, played by Sam Rockwell, asks Cheney to be his running mate.
0: The vice presidency is also defined by the president. If we were to come to a uh, different understanding. Uh huh. Go on. I'm listening. I sense that uh, you're a kinetic leader. You make decisions based on instinct. I am. Hmm. People always said that. Yeah, yeah. Very different very different from uh, from your father in that regard. Now, maybe I can uh, handle some of the more mundane jobs, overseeing uh, bureaucracy, managing military uh, energy, uh, foreign policy. That sounds good.
1: Adam McKay, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. You just spent years of your life making a movie about Dick Cheney. (laughs) Are there things about Dick Cheney that you like and admire? Yeah, part of the goal
0: of the movie was to dive into the mystery of this guy and, you know, who was this guy who very quietly took the wheel of our country, of our democracy for, depending on, you know, what you believe, six to eight years and had this amazing influence. So... You know, a lot of people jokingly call him Darth Vader because he survived all these heart attacks. He has kind of a gruff, cold exterior. So there's no question we were looking for the human being behind it. And absolutely, uh, I found some things, especially in his early life, a uh, pretty regular guy from Wyoming. Um, really what changed his life was he fell in love with Lynn Vincent, who became Lynn Cheney, uh, fell madly in love with her. And she had a lot of ambition. Very smart woman. But the big thing about Dick Cheney that you find yourself admiring uh, is loves sincerely crazy about his family, crazy about his wife, crazy about his daughters, did all the shopping for the family and did all the cooking for the family. That really became the human backbone of the movie was this devotion to his family. And you even see the fishing metaphor kind of runs through that when he tells his daughter, well. It's not a good trick or a bad trick, fishing, but if we catch a fish, our family gets to eat. And so that's kind of the base of the entire emotional arc of Cheney. And then obviously in the end you see, I don't want to give it away, but some complications regarding that family.
1: How did you decide to make this movie and uh, to a certain extent your previous movie in the form that you did? Which is to say that they almost take... These are narrative fictional films about real life events, but they almost take the shape of like a, um, you know, an Errol Morris movie with less interviews directly facing the camera. Like <laughs> they're almost documentary like in their structure. You know, the big uh, I love the big short it was one of my favorite books I had read. And
0: then a couple of years had gone by and I, I just was wondering why it hadn't been made. And a movie I had seen before that I really loved was 24-Hour Party People uh, by Michael Winterbottom. It's a great little movie if if anyone out there hasn't seen it. And also I come from a background in Chicago of long-form improvisation, which is influenced by story theater. Uh, You know, Mike Nichols, Elaine May, a lot of those people came through it. Part of that is breaking the fourth wall, using monologues and then going into scenes. So that kind of coupled with my realization after seeing 24-hour party people like, oh, you can do this. And it's actually pretty seamless and kind of fun. So I knew the only way to crack uh, the big short was to play with form a little bit. It was very natural to that movie because the financial products were so esoteric and confusing and, of course, were designed to be that way. With Cheney, it was a different motivation. With Cheney, it was the fact that his power was so quiet. It was so bureaucratic. It was so built around papers and desks and hallways. And yet this power was changing the world. So I wanted to find a way to bridge kind of this office bureaucratic know-how and understanding of the government with actual human impact about what's going on with the world. And also, at the same time, keep the audience off balance. My worst fear was that they would settle into kind of a traditional biopic. And I just didn't want that comfort to run through the movie.
1: In some ways, what the movie is about is Dick Cheney creating comfort in America, even within the administration, like creating a sense that things are just kind of moving along while doing extraordinary things. It was uh, we actually say it in the movie. It's one of his superpowers. And a
0: lot of people around him confirm this, that he has the ability to say the craziest things and make them seem very professional. You even look at photographs of him during the Ford years. There's a lot of him like stretching over behind Ford, kind of as his right hand man talking into his ear, uh, leaning on the desk towards Ford. We actually discovered, Christian Bale and I, at one point, that really one of his strengths is he's kind of the ultimate codependent to power. He really presents himself as someone who's going to make your power greater. And it's an unusual road, but that's a lot of where his power came from.
1: There's a gag in the movie where, as you present that idea, the idea that his superpower is um, is to—is to—is basically to be so boring— uh and so normal seeming that he can say the most extraordinary thing without notice um and have it be agreed to. Uh you go full on with a gag that could have been in Talladega nights or something. Without a doubt.
0: Yeah. I mean it's we wanna just shock the audience and it's it's very fun seeing the audience thinking they're in this dusty old biopic and then suddenly that line is said by a character
1: yeah (laughs) i I mean i can't really repeat most of it on npr but it does end with uh well i do like a good puppet show (laughs) that's uh henry kissinger saying that yeah yeah that's the
0: one thing you can say
1: (laughs) i'm jesse thorne you're listening to bullseye my guest is the filmmaker adam mckay you were a founding member of the legendary sketch and improv group the upright citizens brigade Which you left after not that long. But you participated in a very famous UCB show that involved flyering the neighborhood. (laughs) The city. The city. Yeah. Before this show. And like the UCB was always engaged in like uh, trying to make improv shows almost into happenings, pulling people into the street, things like that. Definitely. This was probably its grandest manifestation though.
0: Yeah, we uh, went out, papered the city, handed out flyers on subway cars, the L, basically advertising my own suicide. I'm assuming this is what you're thinking. (laughs) And I had had a really terrible headshot done a couple of years before that was super cheeseball where the photographers like smile bigger. And we used to always laugh at my terrible headshot. So that was the picture. And it just said, on such and such date, Adam McKay will kill himself. And then in big letters, no joke. <laughs> and uh, and there were some people that were concerned. And then during the show, at one point, this is how long ago this was. We went to a, a local real estate guy, and they had a building across from the theater that was like six stories high, seven stories high. And I think it was the Flatiron Building. And – um and we said, Can we get on your building? And can I yell to a crowd that we're going to pull out of the theater? And once again, the mid 90s. And the guy's like, Sure, I always support the arts. <laughs> so we dragged the audience out of the theater. And I was up on top of this building yelling, Is this what you want? Is this why you came here? And I could hear Dell close down there going, Jump, jump. <laughs> And then I backed up and we had a CPR dummy dressed as me. And it really did. I mean, from far away, it kind of looked like me. And we threw it off the building and I could hear the crowd gasp for like half a second. The body hit and I was dead. And then meanwhile, I ran as fast as I could downstairs. We took an elevator and then bolted out. And then a guy named Armando Diaz, who now runs a theater in New York City called the Magnet Improv Theater. He came out as the Grim Reaper to claim me. And the UCB bribed him to go away, and then I snuck into the group and and popped back to life and We all went into the theater with cheers, but uh that was a good time
1: uh, <laughs> Why was it important to you to make a scheme as grand as that one when you to be fair like we're probably earning thirty dollars from that show.
0: Uh, I don't even think we made that. I think we made zero on that show. We would save the money to buy our props. So we weren't making anything. Uh, we were all teaching improv on the side. I think that's how we did it. You know, we were the whole fun of the initial Upright Citizens Brigade and, and obviously evolved into something different and and wonderful. The beginning was, you're right, it was like happenings, it was pranks. We would just do things you weren't supposed to do. We took the whole audience back to my apartment once because it was a first floor apartment and had played out a whole murder scene where Horatio Sands busted in the room and, and killed a guy who was like an actor and it, it looked like a real apartment. Part of the audience was like, what are they doing? We just did all kinds of things like that and, and took the audience into the street and improvised a scene over an intersection where it was like Thanksgiving dinner and, you know, we were in our 20s and we were just – it was that last time you could kind of do stuff like that before people started really freaking out about insurance and, and little things like the law. And, uh, and the whole spirit of the Upright Citizens Brigade was you really don't know what's going to happen at these shows. Um, I remember another time we had a guy planted in the audience, a lot of great actors in Chicago, too. So this is a guy no one would have known, but he was a good actor. And in the middle of our show, he said, what are you doing, sir? Why are you writing notes? And he's like trying to blow us off. And then it turns out that he's Richard Christensen, the biggest critic in Chicago for, I think, the Tribune. And we all say, let us see those notes. And we start reading them and they're terrible. They're panning our show. And we grab him and we run him out of the theater and throw him on the street. The audience follows him and we tear up all his notes and we scream at him and say, don't ever come back. And for a week, it buzzed all around Chicago that we had thrown Richard Christensen out of our show (laughs) and torn up his notes. And uh, I believe the real Richard Christensen had to say, like, no, I've never seen their show. Like, uh, yeah, it was great. It was uh, that was also the theater scene in Chicago at that time. There were a lot of really cool experimental groups like. It's a group called Theater Ublik, and uh, it's a group called Cook County Theater Department that Gary Wilms was in and uh, Richard Maxwell, who's now an Obie Award winning playwright in New York City. And it was a really vital theater scene that was going on there.
1: At the same time, at some point you had to figure out how to make comedy a profession. If you wanted to spend that much time on it.
0: That was it. And then so I auditioned for Second City just because how many auditions can you do that are improv? And I thought, yeah, I might as well. Not expecting to get in. And I got in and they paid. <laughs> and that was it. Mm-hmm. So eventually, about a year after that, because you start off kind of slow at Second City, I told them, I said, I got to I gotta leave. I got to pay my rent. And they made the greatest trade since Lou Brock for what's that famous terrible baseball trade? Lou Brock for some guy you've never heard of. And I left the group. Let's say
1: Jeff Bagwell for Larry Anderson. That's the uh, one that I, I like remember it. off That's the top. That's
0: very good. That's very good. That's a little more modern too. Uh, and so they traded me for Amy Poehler. And the rest is history. And so they were like, oh, McKay left for about a week. And then it was Amy Poehler. And they're like, wait a minute. And they kind of shot like a rocket ship. And it worked out great for all of us. I got to go to Second City and got hired by SNL. And then they all moved to New York. So I still got to do improv with them. And, and it's been very cool to see that theater just grow
1: and grow. We'll wrap up my conversation with Adam McKay after a short break. He's making more serious movies these days. Movies about real stuff that actually happen. He'll tell me how he manages to keep his films fresh, funny, and weird, even when Will Ferrell isn't in them. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com.
0: The U.S. and Iran have been at odds for a long time, and we tend to think it all started with the Iranian Revolution in 1979. But that's not the whole story. This week on Throughline, we'll take you back to four days in 1953 that changed the
1: U.S.-Iran relationship forever. Throughline. Where we go back in time
0: To understand the
1: present Greetings, I am Plek Setter, uh, Contacting you from the Zik Squadron Which is frankly uh, sort of crappy But I'm, I'm here on a heroic mission With my trusty crew, C-53 uh, Heroic cool. feels like an exaggeration Okay, sure, and, and uh, security officer Dar
0: Plek, don't put me in your stupid recording
1: Well, and uh, We're all traveling aboard our trusty starship The Bargerian Jade bargee what? Sorry. I'm awake. I'm awake. I was, it's fine. I was just flying while well, asleep. Hey there, this is Alden Ford. I play Pleck, and we are so excited to announce that our podcast, Mission to Zix, is now part of the Maximum Fun Network. Our third season launches on Max Fun on March 20th. Binge seasons one and two right now. That's Mission to Zix, ZYXX. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Adam McKay, is the writer and director of Vice, the film about former Vice President Dick Cheney. Adam also made the films Anchorman, The Big Short, and Step Brothers. I want to play a sketch that you wrote at the Second City. And this is this scene where um, you are Mr. Grissom, who is a corporate bigwig, and you get called into the HR office uh, a- after having taken some, like, aptitude tests.
0: Question number one on your task, Mr. Grissom, read, complete this sequence of numbers. Mm -hmm. Two, four, six, blank. Good. For your answer, you drew a picture of a snowman. You wrote, happy, happy foot time.
1: uh, That would be an incorrect answer. Are you sure about that, Jerry? Have you checked the answer key? I don't need to check the answer key, Mr. Grissom. This is a. Well, simple I've checked question. a lot of answer keys in my time, well, Jerry. You might want to check a positive numbers. Jerry, is I'm a vice price president. Price? These are
0: $40 socks.
1: let check the key, huh? Mr. Grissom,
0: the key is right here. The answer is eight. It's not foot time. Well, not quite, no. <laughs> get ahead of ourselves, Jerry. Mr. Grissom, according to these test results, you have no sense of object permanence. This is a basic thing we establish when we're six months to a year old that allows us to understand that when your parents leave, they're not gone forever, or when an object goes behind an object it still exists. Well, I can show you right now. Jerry.
1: <laughs> Jerry! Well, where the hell were you? I here talking to myself, Jerry. I'm a busy man.
0: Mr. Grissom, you're 44 years old and we basically just played peekaboo. <laughs> well, I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God.
1: Scott Adsit! too. Oh, he's the best. Uh, Scott Adsit, who folks might know from, uh, from 30 Rock, among other places. The tone of that sketch, um, I think maybe even more than the many great things that you wrote with and for Will Farrell on SNL when you were head writer of SNL, is like where your career ended up more recently, which is it is just openly contemptuous of the idea of business leaders being business leaders and all the phoniness around being a business leader.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think what was great about Chicago was just that Chicago kind of, you know, ethos is that comedy blends with politics, blends with community, blends with social act. You know, everything is in the same pot in Chicago and you know, obviously the tradition of unionism in Chicago, studs turkle and all that kind of stuff. And that's what Del Close taught too. His famous line was like, you know, aim for art or relevance, and if you miss, you'll get comedy. You aim for comedy and you miss and you get nothing. Uh, so he definitely encouraged that and Second City's kind of built on that. Um yeah, and we were we we caused some trouble in those days too. I mean, we we used to do a lot of uh, you know protests and activism back then, usually with a theater base to it. And I remember we took over Navy Pier on the weekend that it opened because um, it was sponsored by Pepsi, and that this. A German company had bought all the uh, sweetener companies, the corn syrup companies around the Midwest and locked out the employees saying, we want to pay you half as much as you get. So we took over the Navy Pier pretending we were from Pepsi and then staged an entire scene where protesters were coming at us and we were humiliating them and they started tearing up our Pepsi signs and the police showed up and actually arrested the actors playing the protesters. And I was one of the Pepsi guys, and I was like, oh, crap, what are we going to do? And then the cop came up to me and goes, how do you want to handle this? <laughs> and I went, "Um, you know, I think Pepsi's taken enough brand damage today. Why don't we just let him go? And they're like, okay, gentlemen, you're free to go. <laughs> and then we all scurried <laughs> off to our car, and it was like on a couple news stations. So, yeah, that's Chicago. It's a unique, interesting town in that regard.
1: I think that also maybe has something to do with your personal predilection, which is to just go – All the way to it. I mean, even if even the, you know, uh, silliness that you did on Saturday Night Live uh, or, you know, in Anchorman uh, is still I, I was all I always just had my breath taken away at how far you were willing to take the silliness. Yeah, I think it goes back
0: to when I was a kid, the stuff I loved. I mean, there's no better feeling than when you laugh so hard, you have tears in your eyes. And certain jokes from when I was a kid, like an airplane, when the newspapers spin and they say people on airplane doomed to die, how will they land the airplane? And then the third newspaper says, boy trapped in refrigerator eats on foot. (laughs) And I literally I've talked to other comedy writers like, I think that joke changed my life. And, you know, when I was way younger, even the Three Stooges, which is just the level of violence, it's almost like punk rock in that show. And I remember laughing so hard and uh, Amazon Women on the Moon. I remember uh, O'Donahue on SNL like that was the stuff that I was definitely drawn towards. And the thrill of just seeing someone go too far, I just to this day, I still get excited by it.
1: When you went to work at Saturday Night Live as a writer, you, you initially auditioned uh, uh, for a cast role, but um, ended up getting a writing job on the show. Were you familiar with Will Farrell and his work and reputation? He had been L.A. based, I think. Mm-hmm. No,
0: we had no idea who he was. He's also a much more secure, healthy person than myself and my <laughs> oh. friends. So we were all from Chicago and we were nonstop doing bits, nonstop joking around. And he just doesn't do that. He's a pretty normal guy if you bump into him. And so we all just thought he was the straight guy. And then the very first read through, he just uncorked like four of the funniest sketches you've ever heard. Characters, full commitment. We were like, holy cow. But the reason we really connected was because we were doing bits all the time. And it turned out Farrell loved to do bits. And he just started showing up in our office and jumping into the bits we would do. And he was really good at them. And he loved it. And then, like, after six months, he's like, yeah, I just wanted to hang out with you guys because you're always doing bits. And uh, that was the kind of foundation. And then we wrote a sketch together. I think the first one we wrote was Neil Diamond Storytellers. It was actually hard to find, I think, because of the music rights, but it went really well. And it was just such a joy to write with him. We just started
1: writing together more and more. What did you figure out was funny about Will Farrell that is special? I think his, his dead commitment, like just
0: total all out, like no wink in his eyes commitment. He also, we both have a very similar sense of humor. We love when stuff gets out of control. We love... The idea of seeing something on TV or in a movie that you're not supposed to see. That's not supposed to happen. Um, And he also has this great, like, all-American face. It almost seems like he could have been in, like, you know, some sort of action TV show in the 80s or something. Like, he's kind of handsome, but, like, it's a little off, and he just knows how to use it so well. Um, and what's so impressive about him is he can kind of play every kind of comedy. He's actually a great straight man, um, which he doesn't get to do very often, but a really good straight man. Um, so, yeah, we we both about the same age, both came from divorced parents. His dad was a musician, is a musician. My dad's a musician. It was a kind of a freaky thing of just the same age, same influences. And neither one of us are big hand wringers. Like, we do the best work we can do. We rewrite our stuff. We want it to be good. But, you know, there would be some people at SNL that would work on a sketch all day long for 14 hours and then at the last second pull it from the read-through because they didn't think it was good enough. Farrell and I would never do that. We'd just be like, well, it's the read-through. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And, uh, yeah, it's just a really good match. I I think in all the years we've never had one single
1: creative argument ever. The movies that you made with Farrell, including the Anchorman movies and Talladega Nights and so forth – are all so intensely packed with so many crazy jokes <laughs> that they border on incoherency. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, Depending on who you are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean to to varying extents the the other guy is is a pretty is structurally a pretty straight genre movie. Sure. Uh with some jokes like that in it. Yeah. Um, and I love all these movies. I want to be really no, clear no, no, about no, no, this. No, that's fine. Um, but I wonder what it was like to transition from making a movie that is as crazy as Anchorman or Anchorman Two, where you know, on Anchorman you had so many bits that weren't in the movie that you made a second movie <laughs> of feature length out of the stuff that was left out of the first movie. Into making a movie that is about real things that really happened, where you 're responsible to some extent for representing like documentary truth <laughs> and you you know you have to plot it out so that this really complicated thing can be uh explained in the course of the narrative as well well it 's funny hearing you phrase it like that it actually
0: it actually makes more sense than I would think it would make because they're both kind of the same thing with the comedies you're breaking routine you're shocking you're going into the world of absurdity and you're kind of jarring an audience you're you're screwing with their expectations and that's exactly what needed to happen in the big short and vice because If you just list the details of the financial crisis, everyone glazes over. But if you can think of a way to give it a pop and a life and connect and break routine when the whole story of the financial crisis is really a break in routine. Uh, or as Adam Davidson called it, you know, they use weaponized boredom to kind of get get away with this kind of stuff. So we have to kind of break that weaponized boredom. And the same thing with Dick Cheney he uses this kind of bureaucratic, quiet, cranky professionalism to just make it all seem like this is normal. So, yeah, in both cases, rather than it being a big, absurdist, comedic moment that we're breaking the routine with, that we're screwing with, screwing with the form of a movie. It's the financial crisis. It's the esoteric underlying uh, algorithms behind these uh, these products that were being sold. In the case of Dick Cheney, it's, it's the real-world impact of these uh, paper-pushing decisions that seemed so innocuous initially. So, yeah, hearing you phrase it like that, I think that's exactly kind of what happened. It's still about kind of keeping an audience off kilter, or off balance, not letting them settle into
1: traditional uh, sequential beats in a movie. Yeah, I mean you run credits halfway through uh yeah. <laughs> the new movie and you know in a way it's like it shares some DNA with the kind of borderline situationist stuff you were doing in person in Chicago which is the theory of that is that your goal is to give someone an authentic and immediate experience by taking them out of the mundanity of their lives, that there's this kind of drumbeat that we all have that we, you know, we go through the motions of our lives without even noticing, much less appreciating what's going on. And in breaking that somehow, you kind of bring people into what's going on right in front of them.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. You're right. I think it's a consistent thread that runs through what we're doing. I think in Vice, I think the the kind of uh, what you got? urgency of it went to another level. I, I was joking with my editor that, like, we're definitely showing our pit stains in this movie. We're definitely not being cool about it. We are fully waving our arms in the air and saying something is very, very wrong. So it's less cool in Vice. And, and Vice, on you know, in this current climate that we live in, you know, stumbled into the red versus blue nonsense that kind of filters every basic fact that we encounter in this world. So that's kind of a hornet's nest unto itself. But I think the use of that kind of routine breaking formula, breaking style in vice is more to say, Hey, things are really, really wrong on a bigger, grander scale. And depending on who the person is, some people love that. Some people hate that. You know, there's a lot of people that like the cool remove of watching the world click by. And in that movie, we're definitely saying no, no, no. Uh, I want to break as many moments as I can. I want you know I want people to be inside of this. There was uh, someone who said like you know like it or not as the audience in you're involved in this movie and I thought that's pretty great. I can stand by that for better or for worse depending on your opinion. There's no doubt the audience is very involved in that movie.
1: Adam McKay, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really nice to get to meet you and I've admired your work for so long. Thank you for having me on. This was fun. Adam McKay. Vice is still in theaters. You can go check it out there. Like I said before, it is up for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay. We'll find out who won on Sunday, February 24th. Since I have my own radio show, I'm going to take this opportunity to tell everyone listening that Adam McKay's film Anchorman 2 is hilarious and amazing and everyone who thinks otherwise can stick it in their ear. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Kevin, our producer, is back this week. Nice to see you, Kevin, from a trip to Italy. He tells us, that Italian parks are not as interesting as MacArthur Park. In fact, in his experience, which is extensive, nearly two weeks, they are boring and cold and rainy. So take that, Italian parks. (laughs) P.S. Los Angeles was very cold and rainy while you were gone. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien here in the office. Our thanks to Raghu Manavalan for helping while Kevin was gone. Raghu did a great job. Our production fellow is Shayna Deloria. Our thanks to Dan Telfer for helping us find that Second City clip in Adam McKay's interview. Special thanks to the folks at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles for putting us in touch with Barbara Kruger. Our interstitial music comes from Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Thanks, as always, to Dan for sharing it. Our theme song comes from the Go Team. Thanks to them for letting us use it. And did you know we've been making this show for more than 15 years All of our past interviews, pretty much all of our past interviews, are available for free on the Internet on our website at MaximumFun.org. Many, many, many of them are in our podcast feed, which goes back years at this point. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, We post our interviews at YouTube as well, so it's an easy way to find and share them. If you like, just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.